Welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast. In this talk, recorded live from the Primrose Potter Salon, we mark the 50th anniversary of the moon landing with an exploration of sounds from the universe and their impact on the creation of music. Presented by Associate Professor Kenny McAlpine and teaching and outreach fellow Claire Kenyon from the University of Melbourne. Happy listening. Thank you, everybody, and good afternoon and welcome to the Primrose Potter Salon at the Melbourne Recital Centre. My name's Marshall Maguire. I'm the Director of Programming here, and we have a very special musical explorations today, The Sounds of Space. As, was, as I was reminded recently, 50 years ago, at this exact moment, the Apollo... Oh, I've forgotten the Apollo number. It was 11, wasn't it? It was halfway to the moon. So um, this is a very exciting week for all those of us who are interested in space and science and sound, which is exactly what we're talking about today, the sounds of space. This session's being recorded for a podcast, so we'll, um, we'll be able to revisit all the, the, um, the wonderful stories we'll be having today, and that's why we're all mic'd up as well. Our very special guest today uh, from the University of Melbourne. We have uh, two new guests uh, as part of our musical exploration series, Associate Professor Kenny McAlpine, uh, who is the Melbourne Enterprise Fellow in Interactive Composition at the University of Melbourne Conservatorium of Music. And we have Claire Kenyon, um, the Labie Teaching and Outreach, Outreach Fellow at the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne. Please welcome them both. We'd also like to acknowledge that we're meeting here on the lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to our shared future. And it's important to, for all of us to acknowledge, I think, that for thousands of generations, Indigenous people have stood on this spot and sung and danced and made music and told stories about the stars and space and the sounds that go on. So we like to feel that there's some connection going on here through the universe. Uh, Kenny knows this. I told him before, I get, I get completely freaked out about the concept of the universe. So um, if you feel a slight popping sound in the back row, it's my head exploding. But I hope you're going to both put me at rest that all is fine today. Um, at the end of today's session, there will be an opportunity to ask some questions of our guests and we'll hand a microphone around so we can hear your questions. But for now, I will uh, leave the stage and uh, welcome Claire and Kenny to guide us through the sounds of space. Thank you everyone and welcome. Uh, we are here celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 and the moon landing and of course hearing that iconic phrase uttered by Neil Armstrong, beamed to us from the moon. Nowadays we have a large number of instruments which listen or have listened to the universe around us. From Soho and Cassini, listening to the sun and our planets, to Kepler's search for exoplanets in far distant galaxies, and Parkes probing for distant pulsars, to LIGO detecting the very blips of warped space itself in the form of gravitational waves. The universe is abundant in sound, and we have also added to the din. Now one very big and very pertinent question falls immediately out of what Claire's just outlined. And it's this, what does space really sound like? Does it sound like this? Does it sound like this? Or does it sound like this? The more prosaically minded amongst you might already have come down very firmly in favour of absolute silence. And of course you'd be absolutely correct because sound is a form of mechanical energy that requires a host medium. Space, 
is a near-complete vacuum. And so without any appreciable medium for sound to travel through, space is silent. So Ridley Scott's movie tagline remains as resolutely true today as it did 40 years ago. In space, no one can hear you scream. In fact, no one can hear anything. But what about that third clip that I played? Well, that was a recording of Mars, captured by NASA's InSight seismometer. Now, in fact, the raw data that that probe gathered would still be inaudible to us humans because the movements that the seismometer is picking up are too minute and occur over too long a time frame to generate mechanical vibrations at a frequency and at a sound pressure level that we would be able to hear. But by amplifying them and then by speeding them up, we can hear them. We can use technology essentially to extend our sense of hearing. And in fact, that's an approach that we've been taking as humans for centuries. Optical telescopes let us peer into the murky depths of the night sky and resolve detail far finer than would ever be possible with the naked eye. And radio telescopes let us glance at all of the vibrant colours of the cosmos that lie beyond the narrow confines of the visible spectrum. And then at the opposite end of the scale, you've got things like scanning, tunnelling microscopes, which reveal the intricacy of matter at an atomic level. So teloscopy and microscopy have extended our sense of vision almost to the very limits of possibility. But technology doesn't just allow us to extend our senses, it allows us to reconfigure and reconnect them. Those microscopes don't see in the traditional sense. Effectively, they work by feeling their way around and generating structural information that allows us to, to piece together a three-dimensional image. It's a process known as visualisation, converting data from an abstract form into a more concrete pictorial form. And thanks to the ubiquity of personal computing, it's something that's so commonplace that we very rarely give it even a second thought. But if we can visualise data, can we also turn data into sound? And of course the answer is yes. Sonification is that process of taking data and turning it into sound in a way that helps us perceptualise the underlying phenomenon. And it can be a really useful tool. Just think of the immediacy with which a Geiger counter conveys information about radiation levels. There's a physicality that you just don't get from a visual display. And our hearing has evolved to be exceptionally sensitive to minute and anomalous changes to our auditory environment. Just think of the way that you can stand in the middle of a busy city and be completely oblivious to the thrum of metropolitan life until the sudden honk of a car horn alerts you to the fact that you're about to step into oncoming traffic. So if we really listen to space, we can get a completely different perspective on the celestial phenomena that surround us. Sometimes the sounds that are created are beautiful or eerie, and sometimes they're functional or mechanical, but all of them tell us something about the cosmos. But then I would argue that's also true of our very first clip, Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra. It's a beautiful and powerful piece of music, and of course, it's not really about space at all. That opening section of the introduction is called Sonnenaufgang, or Sunrise. But since Stanley Kubrick used it in the opening of 2001 to represent the dawning of a new age, it's become a musical shorthand for the vast wonder of space, in much the same way that Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho is now a musical shorthand for terror. So in the same way that a parable is a constructed fiction that nevertheless tells us a deeper fundamental truth, those cultural representations of space, whether that's Holst's planets or David Bowie's space oddity, they tell us something about how we conceive of the cosmos and our place within it. So in fact, I think all three answers are correct. And we're going to revisit all of them over the course of this afternoon's talk. Before we do that, though, Claire and I would like to do a little listening exercise with you. And not long after I arrived here, I went out with a microphone and recorded a street scene in South Melbourne. Now, you might think that one street scene is much like any other. And on one level, that's true. The hustle and bustle of city life is similar, but the detail of the sound, I think, is very particular to hear. So what I'd like you to do is close your eyes and listen. Picture the scene and think about 
not just what sounds you can hear, but think about what layers of sound that you can hear and relate that back to your experience of being out and about in town. How much of that soundscape would you consciously register and how much would you just filter out and ignore as part of the thrum of daily life? Here we go. Briefly, what did you hear? A hum? Anything? Trams? Absolutely. Very, very. Quite possibly, yeah. So there is the rattle of the of the trams against the rails. There was an awful lot of traffic noise, certainly. Birds, I'm glad you picked that out. They're difficult to hear in amongst the, the thrum, but they are definitely there. Yep, footsteps were in there as well, absolutely. In the distance, yep. Could hear someone changing gears in the car. Yep. A young fellow speeding up. So you might have been near traffic lights or something when you recorded it. I was absolutely near traffic lights. People talking. And there's also a church bell in there too. Uh, there is a prize if anyone at the end of this can tell me which street I recorded that on. And Carol over here, who was with me when I recorded it, is exempt from the competition. So the point is, though, within that soundscape, if you think of that as, as on, the, on the face of it, just being a kind of representation of city life, within it, there are all sorts of layers of different types of sounds. Some of them are continuous, some of them are individual sounds that kind of punch through everything else. And all of these are the things that create the background hum. Uh, all of those, though, have celestial equivalents. So I'll hand you back over to Claire and she will tell you about some of them. So listening out to the universe then, it's much like the streetscape. Close to home, we have magnetic fields interacting with charged particles, producing shimmering, changing, melodic curtains of sound. The solar wind and the cosmic microwave background provide that low-level, ambient, rumbling hum underneath everything. While supernovae, pulsars, they're like the car horns and the construction sounds you can hear. Short, sudden, sometimes repeating sounds. So let's kick it off with our planet and objects nearby in our solar system. What are the incoming sounds from our local neighbourhood? Let's start with the sun, powered by nuclear fusion right at its core, where this dense gravitational environment is forcing protons together to make helium nuclei. The sun is indeed a great big ball of very hot material. The complex processes involving heat transport from this core to the surface result in internal vibrations within the sun. These higher frequency waves are pressure waves, sound waves, or P waves, and are easily observed as rolling sounds on the surface of the sun by an observatory called Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO for short. In addition to these P waves, 
The soundscape of the sun also includes G waves, the signature of a core. The signature of a core that is rotating up to four times faster than the sun, the surface of the sun itself. And then there's everything else coming from the surface of the sun. We've got broiling, roiling materials sloshing around, interacting with strong and very complex magnetic fields. I'm talking phenomena such as solar flares, sunspots, beautiful arcs of hot gas called prominences. Now, what I'm going to play you here is a set of sonified data taken from NASA's SOHO probe. Now, a team from Stanford's Experimental Physics Lab recorded the data across 40 days and then compressed it down by a factor of 42,000 to bring it into the range of human hearing. So what does the sun sound like? Well, it's kind of a pleasing, low, warm hum. So I mentioned this solar wind. Stepping away from the Earth, we can think of the solar wind as this constant range of charged particles which come directly from these outer layers of the sun's atmosphere, the corona. Out here, two million degrees and higher, the material is a plasma made up of positive and negative particles buzzing around with velocities so high that even the intense gravity of the sun can't hold on to them any longer. These particles stream out in all directions, away from the sun, in a constant wind. Occasionally, during the sun's more energetic periods, big blobs of material called coronal mass ejections, or CMEs, break free from the sun and travel outwards in a blob of plasma. You might think of this as a flash of hail in a rainstorm. Now, one of the really interesting things that, that Voyager 1 did for us in its journey out into the solar system uh, was to detect the solar wind using probes mounted to the spacecraft. And so using similar techniques to before, capturing the data and then turning that into uh, sound that, that is within the, the range of human hearing, we can listen to those particles that form the solar wind. And what we end up with is a kind of eerie chatter. almost like chirps of birdsong. Clear? So let's turn our attention now to the magnetosphere, that wonderful umbrella which protects us from the rain of these charged particles coming from the sun and other places. The magnetosphere is basically a huge magnetic field that extends right out into space and is the result of molten metal ions churning away deep in the Earth's interior. If it weren't for the constant pressure of the sun's solar wind, we would see a similar shape to the field produced by a bar magnet. But the constant rain of the solar wind pushes the fabric of the umbrella of the solar wind, and we get something that looks more like this. You can see the charged particles pushing the fabric of the umbrella magnetosphere and following the field lines like water down the spokes of an umbrella. Now, NASA's Themis mission recorded variation in the Earth's electromagnetic shields, which was no mean feat because it required at least four satellites all to be in position at the precise moment that one of those big impacts hit. In fact, what the data revealed was that the magnetopause, when it's hit by the solar wind, particularly high-energy particles from the solar wind, resonates like a beating drum. And it's a phenomenon that you can hear quite distinctly when we turn the data into sound. Coming back to the solar wind, though, this is maybe one of those instances where a well-placed sound metaphor, a more representational sound, is maybe more illustrative than the actual sound of the phenomenon. Now, coming back to the idea that, that Claire mentioned earlier, that the solar wind is maybe best thought of as a, a sudden downpour. 
Uh, and so it rains a torrential downpour of charged particles on the Earth's invisible umbrella. The sound that might help to convey that notion is maybe something a little more like this. What do we actually get on Earth? Well, you might have been lucky enough to travel to the Arctic or Antarctic circles, or even to have seen the aurora from the southern areas of Australia during the times of intense solar activity. If not, you've probably seen some of these stunning pictures produced with time-lapse photography on Earth, and also those beamed down from the ISS as it orbits the planet. Aurorae are the direct result of charged particles hitting the Earth's magnetic field and then being funneled down towards the poles of the Earth, the north and south ends of the bar magnet, where they interact with gases in the atmosphere, producing beautiful ethereal light shows in colours related to the oxygen and nitrogen with which they interact, in a process very similar to neon lighting. During times of solar maximum, when the sun is most active in its 11-year cycle, we are typically treated to the best auroral shows with sheets or curtains of light extending around the horizon, gradually changing, weaving, waxing and waning for bursts of 15 to 40 minutes. You can see in the photos here several colours. Neutral nitrogen gas usually gives us the red, purple, right at the very base of these auroral curtains or sheets. Ionic nitrogen gives us that electric blue colour right at the top, and also a, a green. And oxygen, about 100 kilometres up, gives us that typical yellow-green colour. Higher than that, 320 kilometres above, where the air is much thinner and the nitrogen molecules don't bump the oxygen so much, we get this amazing red colour. So when those charged particles from the solar wind get caught up in the Earth's magnetic uh, field, they also emit radiation. In this case, it's radio waves. Now, between 2003 and 2005, the European Space Agency's cluster mission recorded those radio waves directly. And so we can tune into the aurora in exactly the same way that we can any other type of radio signal. And in fact, if these waves weren't deflected off into space by the magnetosphere, you could tune in and listen to the celestial broadcast from Earth. Here's what they sound like. Now again, the recordings are a little bit noisy, but you can hear there's a kind of ethereal chatter to the sound. I think it sounds a bit like R2-D2 having a party with C-3PO. All of those whistles and chirps come over a kind of drone-like hum. Now what we can do though is, is a process called recomposition, which is where you take those kind of sonic elements and, and reimagine them in the studio. And so what I've done is take that original sound as a starting point and I've now composed a short sound piece in response. And so that use, uses synthesised elements from the original data along with some manipulated acoustic flute to try and get that sense of chatter. So the best way to think of this is really like a creative response to the underlying phenomenon. In the same way that a composer like Sanson, for example, tried to capture the essential quality of the different animals and the carnival des animaux.
Creepy. <laughs> Away from the sun and the earth now, but let's stick with magnetic fields. We're about to play you one of the eeriest sounds, even worse than that one in my opinion, I think I've ever heard. You'd be familiar, hopefully, with the ringed planet Saturn. Perhaps even its moon, Enceladus, which I call the salad planet, which actually sits inside the magnetic field of Saturn and is geologically active, quite different from our own moon. As it orbits Saturn, Enceladus shoots plumes of water into its atmosphere. The magnetic field here and the environment is so intense that these water molecules actually become ionized. And as we know, electrical particle, electrical uh, particles, particles with, with electrical field, they interact with magnetic fields. And what happens is this material travels to Saturn and then back again in this sort of relay chat. And Cassini traveled, it's a, it's a probe that we, t we sent to Saturn just recently, and in fact, um, about two years ago, we uh, plunged it into the atmosphere. As Cassini traveled through one of these Saturn Enceladus flux tubes, it picked up this radiation noise. Two weeks later, on my birthday, Cassini was plunged into the atmosphere of Saturn, ending its mission. And so the sound we're going to play you here is, I guess, kind of similar to that of the, of the aurora that we just heard, uh, and also similar to that of the sun. Cassini picked up the radio waves generated between Saturn and Enceladus. This time again, the sounds have been compressed in time, a bit like an audio time-lapse, so that we can hear that slow-changing detail much more readily. And it's been dropped in frequency by a factor of five just to make it audible to us. Now, I think what's interesting is not so much how creepy it is, but how much I think it sounds like celestial whale song. Now, if you listen in, I think you can hear two distinct voices. There's a, a bass voice and a treble voice. It's almost as if Saturn and Enceladus are calling out to one another across the ether. Enough of that. <laughs> Although we could spend the whole hour talking about solar system objects alone, we thought maybe we'd also mix in a few distant objects as well. Our sun is a fit, healthy, thriving, smallish star, which is not destined for a very exciting death. Unless you're on Earth at the time, I suppose. Not for long. Stars more massive than our sun, though, eight to 15 times the mass of our sun, are destined to explode in energetic Type II supernova events. Stars of 18 to 15 solar masses have a lot more inward gravitational pressure and continue forcing elements into one another in the core until they get to nickel-iron. At this point, any fusion process would actually cost more energy than it gives off. So fusion stops. The outer layers then aren't held up by radiation pressure anymore, and they come crashing down towards the core. Just like sound waves, this also creates an energy wave that travels towards the core. So this shock wave actually travels faster than the falling material. It hits the core, bounces off the core, and heads back out. And it meets all the infalling material. So we've got an energy wave travelling outwards, material falling inwards, and boom! 
the entire star blasts apart. Type 1 supernova typically involve a much smaller stellar remnant, a white dwarf, which our sun is ultimately destined to become, leaching material from a nearby binary star, and basically taking on more mass than it can handle. Basically, my subjects in high school. One supernova every 50 years, on average, goes off in a galaxy the size of our Milky Way, making approximately one per second in the universe. Now, one of the difficulties in sonifying a supernova is that it's a phenomenally violent event. Now, we're going to show you a simulation here, but the simulation has been slowed down in time really quite dramatically. So what I've tried to do is break down the different components that Claire's talked about um, so that we can hear representational sounds that capture each of the different sections. So if you listen in, you should hear the initial implosion at the start, the shockwave coming out, and then you should hear the build-up and bubbling and ignition of all of the hot gases uh, underneath. I much prefer that one. <laughs> so after a star has gone supernova, what happens? Well, apart from the pretty nebulae left behind, enough material might remain to form one of two things, a neutron star or a black hole. Let's start with neutron stars. The remnant left behind after the supernova has no fuel source at all and can't support its own material to stop it collapsing in on itself under gravity. So this actually forces that material, what's left, up to about three solar masses, into a space 10 to 20 kilometres across. In fact, there's so much mass and gravity is so dominant that protons get forced together with electrons, making neutrons. These neutrons don't want to squish any further. They really don't. They're quite resistant to it. And support the material from further gravitational collapse. This material is so dense that if I took a teaspoon, despite all my working out, no way I could lift it, weighing at about a billion tonnes. So typically, the remnant will be spinning a little bit before it collapses. This spin gets magnified due to conservation of angular momentum. Think pulling your arms in whilst spinning an office chair. Look, I asked for one and I was going to do it for you, but you know, OH&S. <laughs> Due to the extreme environment, neutron stars also have strong magnetic fields. Yep, magnetic fields, we love those. And if the spinner axis aligns favourably with the neutron star, then we get a beam of radiation funnelled out of each pole. If this beam of light happens to sweep across Earth, we register a flash, much like a lighthouse beam. Here we have some pulsar data from the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank. Pulsars eventually cool off and slow down, but they can actually acquire material or energy and be given a kick and get spun up to thousands of times a second by leaching material from a nearby binary star. So what Claire showed us in the previous slide was a classic slow pulsar signature, that tick, tick, tick. In fact, it's been suggested that pulsars might be amongst the most accurate clocks in the universe. Certainly, they're amongst the most precise natural cosmic clocks that we've discovered to date. But not all of them take all of that slowly. As we've just seen, some of them can acquire matter from a binary companion and speed up. So what I've done here is take that tick signal and demonstrate what happens as the period of rotation decreases. So in other words, as the ticking begins to speed up. Now what you hear then is those ticks initially get closer and closer together until eventually they just fuse into a continuous tone.
So rather than appearing as discrete texts, some of these pulsars actually sing to us. They sing at definite frequencies. So these millisecond pulsars appear as pitched tones, with the pitch being determined by the pulsar's rotational speed. Now, if you glance out into space then and look at a cluster of pulsars, they might sound something like this. Sorry, I'm getting flashbacks for Nepean Highway at about 4 p.m. <laughs> so what happens when the mass of the remnant is too much for even neutrons to keep themselves apart? Well, we enter the realm of the black hole, where matter is crushed under the immense gravity of material, warping even the fabric of space itself. Here, we have an animation of two black holes, approximately 30 solar masses, orbiting each other and slowly spiralling into a merger event, warping space-time as they do. These ripples travel out through the fabric of space-time and reach us here on Earth. We have a bunch of detectors called interferometers, which measure changes between the X and the Y axis lengths. And at their most sensitive state, are able to detect changes in length of up to one ten-thousandth, the width of a proton. So what happens is the wave comes in, and there's several sites around the Earth that measure this, and they will change one arm and not the other. And so when they detect that change, they go, oh, event. And then they go, hey, did you get it too? Did you get it too? Like, yeah, yeah, we got it, we got it. And they go, oh, oh, this is the exact right energy for a merging black hole. LIGO experienced its first detection, direct detection, on September 14th, the day before my birthday, everyone, 2015, which was a black hole merger 1.3 billion light years away. And here it is. Not what I expected, honestly. I wanted a drain noise, you know? <laughs> so sticking with black holes, a quick journey to those which are a million to a billion times the mass of our sun. Supermassive black holes. Incidentally, a really cool song by Muse. These are thought to reside at the centre of most galaxies. In some galaxies known as active galactic nuclei, or AGN, they're particularly hungry, and they accrete lots of material from the disk of gas and dust surrounding it. This process is extremely energetic, resulting in a lot of light, charged particles, and of course, magnetic fields, and a powerful jet of spiralling ionised particles bursting out from the pole of the AGN is produced. This spiralling causes radio waves known as breaking, or Bremsstrahlung radiation, and is a result of these electrons changing direction in a magnetic field. If this is aligned with Earth, we see a very intense, very bright floodlight, a radio noise. So the blazar then is almost the most science fiction-y of all the objects that we're going to look at today. It presents with this high-intensity, narrow-band signal focused around one particular frequency. So I'm going to gloss over any obvious allusions to tractor beams and death stars, but essentially the sound design thinking would be the same whether we were trying to sonify a physical phenomenon like this or if we were trying to bring to life a fictional one on screen. That beam of energy translates into a continuous sound beam focused around one particular pitch. It's not necessarily pleasant, but then who said space always had to be beautiful?
actually reminds me of the Bifrost. Uh, <laughs> I've been watching all the Marvel movies. Uh, <laughs> finally, we come to the very background noise of the universe, the cosmic microwave background, or CMB. For the first approximately 300,000 years after the Big Bang, the pressure and the temperature were so high, there were no atoms, only this plasma of charged particles. This medium is so excellent at scattering light, making it a lot like trying to drive in really dense fog, trapping these photons, trapping these light particles. They can't get out. So we can't actually see back into this time at all. As the universe cooled and expanded, atoms began to form, releasing these trapped photons to go about their business and creating this heat signature across the whole sky, the actual background of our universe. The cosmic microwave background then is, is one of those things that you will have experienced without even necessarily knowing it. When you tune an analogue radio set or an analogue television between stations and you receive that static hiss, tiny fraction of that hiss is actually the cosmic background radiation. Let's have a listen. Changing tack now, it's not all about the sounds that we get from around us. We've added our own voices to the din. For a long time now, we've been leaking radio transmissions, TV, radio. All those signals are heading out there, goodness knows where. We've also deliberately sent information out into the universe. For example, we sent the Arecibo message in 1974, which is that top one, to a globular cluster called M13, some 25,000 light years away, telling them all about Earth and humanity. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but that's okay. <laughs> and there have been many, a number of many messages beamed at stars and regions since then. For example, those through the active SETI and METI programs, so Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence and Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. The second one freaks me out a little bit because it literally says... Hey guys, you're not alone, we're here. And what worries me about that, of course, is that anybody that's capable of visiting us from there is probably significantly more involved. <laughs> I'm really slightly nervous. Finally, Voyager 1, launched from Earth in 1977. After gathering data on planets in our solar system and sending it back, it continued its journey out into the great beyond. It's now 18.8 billion kilometres from Earth, well and truly beyond our solar system. It carries with it the golden record, which was engraved with instructions of how to play the record, and information about Earth, again. Gosh, we are vain, aren't we? But also contained audio recordings of sounds from Earth. Now, what we wanted to do then was take some of what we've just talked about and put that into context. Now, coming back to that idea that expressive sound and music uh, and using that to try and capture something of the affective nature of the cosmos tells us quite a lot about how we view ourselves and our relationship to space. So we thought, why not try and use the sounds, some of the sounds that we've, we've introduced today, to try and paint a picture, a kind of little sound vignette, if you like, of the universe around us, and without a hint of irony, compress the last 13.7 billion years into just a few short minutes. So think of this then as being a bit like Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf or Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. Claire and I have already introduced you to some of the players in this sound piece, and we've prompted you for things to listen out for. But there's more in there. Think of this as being like our celestial street scene. Close your eyes, listen to the sounds, and try and picture some of what is going on round about you. I want you to listen out for the Big Bang at the very start of the piece, because that throws everything into action. 
Claire talked about the dense fog of the early universe. So listen for the twinkle of photons as they wink into existence, as the universe expands and cools. And then listen in for the crackling and thudding of matter as it starts to condense and collapse in on itself and coalesce to form the solar system. See if you can hear the hum of the sun and the electromagnetic signature of some of the planets and of the aurora, and see if you can hear the song of the quasars and the pulsars. And then, as time goes on, listen out for those first crackly radio broadcasts that we sent into space. And then listen to how they build exponentially as we filled the airwaves with radio and televisual noise. We've saturated them with chatter. And then finally, we've got the sound of humankind reaching out into space, the sound of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, and the sound of Voyager blasting off and carrying a message from the people of Earth. Here we go.
from the children of planet Earth. So we've heard a number of different sounds of space. We've questioned what sound really means in the context of space and listened to objects both near to Earth and impossibly far away. We have opened our definition of sound to include more than just sound waves, widening from true sound waves and even anything with a frequency to incorporate a more cultural meaning of sound. The universe is an enormous place, full of a huge number of sounds, a veritable cacophony, with Earth adding its own voice to the chatter. We need only listen. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Clee. You've confirmed all my worst fears. Um, <laughs> but also given me some, some hope, I guess. Now, you talked a lot about the eeriness of the sounds. And I, I'm hoping you're all thinking of some great questions in the time we've got available. But I wanted to start off thinking about you know, 50 or 60 years ago when people were excited about space. And then thinking about popular culture, movies and TV shows like Lost in Space or Star Trek, Star Wars movies. Were they basing their, the sounds they used, tractor beams and beaming people up and down and on the science, or were they just having incredibly vivid and ac accurate imaginations? Are you aware of what the thinking was there? I think probably not. No, you know, uh, one not, of not basing it on the no, science. No, 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 absolutely not. No, uh, very much representational. Um, you know, if you think of one of the classic sounds of 1950s schlock B-movie sci-fi. It's that classic theremin sound, you know, the <laughs> Now, actually, that sound, uh, it's one of those kind of accidental congruences. The sound of the theremin and the, the mode of playing of the theremin is based on capacitance and radio waves, which, as we discussed, is the mechanics of very many of the sounds that we've heard today. So I think it's just a combination of the fact that you have this kind of creepy, eerie sound, and it worked well in context, but by a strange quirk of fate, the universe plays the theremin too. I would also add that it's not necessarily coincidence in the sense that some of the way these things work is the interaction of electrical and magnetic fields, which is, as you would have heard, a large number of the sounds we're listening to are interactions between charged particles and magnetic fields. So it's kind of coincidental, but it's also not an accident, depending which way you look at it. I also want to ask, and forgive me, I'm just going to hog this for a little bit, <laughs> but part of the eeriness of space, I've always thought, is the silence of space. And I'm thinking about George Clooney and I'm thinking about Sandra Bullock. Oh, poor George. And those long moments where <laughs> there was nothing. Now, if I was George Clooney out there, what would I be hearing? Would, it, would I hear anything? Probably the sound of yourself screaming as you are. Yeah, that's what I'm go. worried about. So, <laughs> well, Sorry, actually, <laughs> so <laughs> what, what you're talking about there is Eduardo Caron's gravity. And actually, you know, we started off listening to Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra, which opens up 2001 A Space Odyssey. There you've got two very different perspectives on space. 2001 is all about 
us being tiny relative to those. If you think of some of the, the cinematography there, it's all about capturing the vastness of space, whereas Gravity is a very, very insular movie, and the sound design in that movie is all about capturing the sounds that the, the astronauts would have heard in their spacesuits, and so it's, it's very, very claustrophobic, whereas 2001 is very open. Um, and all of that feel, or an awful lot of that feeling, comes through the sound design. Enough of my fears. Has anybody got any questions out there? We'll just get a microphone to you. Just run down in the front here. Oh, no, we need you. <laughs> need to hear you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it occurs to me that um, the medieval people were on the right track with the, the music of the spheres. Um, something like a coincidence. But my question is, is it true that sounds never die, that they just go on in despair? So every sound that's ever been made on Earth is still spinning out there in space somewhere. So if I'm going to take your, your sound question literally, if we're talking about particles bumping each other, then absolutely eventually it gets to the point where it's just so low because the energy is spreading out over a larger and larger area. Um, absolutely, that, um, that will effectively die out, sort of like a frog jumping halfway all the time and never gets into the pond. Um, but in terms of electromagnetic waves, if we're receiving them, then that's where it will stop because that energy gets then converted. But if, it, if it's allowed to pass through and not be detected, as in there's not something in the way, because that's what detection is essentially, is collection, it's just like water, we'll just keep going, just keep going. Um, there, is, there are other factors. Uh, space is expanding um, in every direction. So as light waves travel through space, if you've, got a light, if you've got a wave that's just a normal squiggle, let's say it's a metre apart, as it travels over the vastness of space, that space actually extends. So instead of having a, a rigid fabric with a wave on it, you've actually got stretchy material. So what happens is that the rises and the falls, so the peaks of that wave, which are essentially how bright something is, they get smaller and smaller. And so as it's going through space, it's expanding. At the other end, they become so red, which is our lowest energy part of the visual spectrum, and then all the way down to radio, that they effectively become wash. You can't hear them anymore or can't detect them so much above the background anymore. Another question up the back, I think, yeah. Okay, you talk about the sounds of space and you've talked about how it's expanding. But how do we know, like, how do you know it's expanding or how do you know that there's, well, what's on the other side of our space and what sound does that make? Ooh, do you know the sound of the multiverse, Kenny? <laughs> <sighs> no, see, that, oh, that's a, that's a very deep question. Um, and I think, actually, it's, it's unresolved as to whether or not this is it, or whether there are other, you know, there's things like brain theory, for example, which is an attempt to uh, explain ultimately what might have caused the initial quantum event that set the Big Bang into motion. And one possible theory is that there are multiple universe membranes floating about in a kind of higher dimensional super universe and it was the collision of these two things that caused an undulation that set forth our universe in motion. The challenge with that is all of these are really, really interesting ideas. At the moment, with our current technology, it's almost impossible to imagine how you would set up an experiment to determine which of those is actually true. So actually, it becomes almost metaphysical. Um, and once you're into that sort of territory, you're back to the idea of a kind of cultural representation of those things. So what that sounds like is really just limited by your imagination, you, you grab onto one particular aspect of it that talks to you, and then you think about how you would communicate that musically or sonically to someone else, but it's very much more than about the ideas and how you capture those ideas as an affective thing through sound and music, rather than trying to capture data which we couldn't really do because we've got absolutely no way of communicating with those higher dimensional or extra dimensional things. You don't, you don't want to put philosophy and maths to music now? I, I we talked about that earlier with uh, Pythagoras' oh, music of the spheres, didn't if we? If you imagine our universe as a bubble and we're looking at, if, we're in the, if we are in this centre of this bubble, or anywhere in this bubble that is infinite in all directions, um, what I was talking about before with this, the CMB, um, we can see right to the point where the photons are released. Now, photons basically 
the energy. That is the science we get. Whenever we get information, with the exception of gravitational waves, photons is what we're getting. We're getting energy. So if we can't see past that sort of photon horizon, we can't really probe any further back to the start of this Big Bang and then on into other places. Does that mean then they're sending something out and that thing is hitting like the edge of our universe and then bouncing back and they know that's where, how far it is? Not a chance. Uh, that if we tried to do that, um, we would be uh, sending something 13.9 billion years wait just for it to get there and then a lot longer to come back. Um, so uh, basically, if you think about it all, in, we're uh, in the middle of a sphere, not it could be an infinite sphere and it's expanding. When we're looking out, we can see through all of the close by material in the sphere. So if I'm in the middle of a, of a ball and I'm looking out, I can see all the material all the way out, all the way out to here. So that's actually not me sending any signals. That's actually the signals of whatever's around there. So the pulsars are sending their light from there to us. The supernovae are sending their light to us. Um, much like in a mirror, the light's coming from the surface of the mirror to you. It's sure it's coming from a source and then hitting the mirror and coming to you. So that's probably more like what you're thinking. But these, these objects actually produce their own light and so does the CMB. We're seeing the photons all the way back there. So we're looking back in time, not just through space. We just have to wait for the mic. Doesn't time space limit what is? You can't go beyond time space. Absolutely. So we've got our light cone. We can't, we can't actually see outside that. It's, it's kind of one of those questions, quantum questions, where we kind of go, uh, and then we stop thinking about it. <laughs> There's another question down the front here. I'm, I'm mindful of time, but we've got a few, a few more. Okay, I, I just want to be a little bit critical here because I'm keen to separate translating data of what we receive into sound that we can perceive and interpretive things here because interpreting the sounds of space by using conventional instruments or electronic instruments or acoustic instruments doesn't work for me, I'm afraid. Um, I'm, I kind of think of that as, you know, if Beethoven were an alien and he somehow sent information about his seventh symphony to us and we tried to kind of transcribe it by synthesising it on, you know, electronic instruments, that's completely different to listening to it with a symphony orchestra. <laughs> so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I just wanted you to kind of maybe clarify what you have played to us today and what was actually translated data and what was interpretive? I just want to make the quick point that everything you hear and experience as your own detector is interpreted. So even me doing this is going to be heard differently by the little bones in your ear than it is by you. So actually, every single thing that you get, every data point you get, is in fact interpreted in some way, shape or form. And whether that's a physical instrument with an error of whatever, or whether it is your ears or your eyes, your brain is ultimately putting it together for you. Even when I look at a graph on a piece of paper, I'm personally interpreting that. My eyes are looking at the graph. I can see something there. Colours, who knows? Is red the same for you as it is for me? How do we know? So I want to make that point first of all, as a slight rebuttal. Second of all, uh, certainly the sounds of uh, Saturn, for example, real. And I think Kenny was quite clear when he was using real yeah, I, I'm, sounds. I'm a little surprised by your, your comment because I thought I was quite explicit about <laughs> which sounds were sonified data and which sounds had been recomposed. So I think just listen back to the podcast, I would say. Thank you. <laughs> I think we, we should wrap up now because we're well well beyond time and space um, but I'd like to once again thank you for um, I'll sleep a little easier tonight I'm still troubled by what Brian Schmidt told me some years ago that we used to think the universe was getting bigger and then it would eventually slow down and then come back he says it's just getting bigger and faster and it's going to keep growing so we've got a lot of time to keep considering all these issues Kenny um, Claire thank you so much for coming to talking to us today and thank you everybody for joining us for the sounds of space thank you Thanks for listening. To discover more stories about the music, musicians and people that make Melbourne Recital Centre the best place to hear, visit soundescapes.melbournerecital.com.au.